0: Revelation chapter 3 is a continuation of the journey that we began in Revelation chapter 2 where we've been visiting the seven cities with John that he was told to deliver the word to. And we've already delivered this word to four cities in Revelation chapter 2 and we will now visit the final three which are Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So beginning with Sardis. um, Sardis, by the way, is interesting because it's a crossroads city. It's a busy place, and there are five, or were, of course, five major highways that ran through Asia Minor. And so there was lots of commerce there and lots of activity, activity, as a result, there was great wealth in the city of Sardis. So that's something to bear in mind as we as we read what's given to the people in this city. And uh, it, it also was a place where moral standards were known to be low. So here's how the Lord introduces himself in verse one to the city of Sardis, the saints in the city of Sardis in particular. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Okay. So there is the is the fifth way then in which Jesus Christ introduces himself and it is he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So he's he's given us a version of that earlier where he holds those seven stars in his right hand and we've been told earlier in revelation chapter 1 that those seven spirits if i remember right it was in verse 4 that those seven spirits can be interpreted as the leaders of these churches and 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 so so can the stars so that's what we're talking about there then um there's another way of translating this second phrase in verse 1 and and it it, it would go like this. This is the Weymouth translation. He says, "You have a name of being alive, but you are dead." All right. So, the the King James here says, "I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead." So, that, that's how that that goes. So, it's it's the first piece of rebuke or correction to these people. You're spiritually dead. Verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. And other translations say complete. I have not found thy works complete before God. We, we find this relationship throughout the New Testament between the words complete and perfect because the Greek word that underlies those can, can be translated as complete, which is very helpful to us. So their works are not found complete before God. And so they're told to do the following in verse three. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour will I come upon thee. Or the Wayment translation says, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come against you. This is reminiscent of. Paul's language to the Thessalonians in Thessalonians chapter 5, when he says in verse 2, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, in other words, all is well, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So here Paul is differentiating between those who will not be overtaken in this same manner where the Savior comes in a thief because they'll have a sense for the time of his coming and they'll be able to prepare for it. Here, John is talking about a different crowd. These people in Sardis, uh, they will not be ready. They will not know an hour when he will come against them, as it says in verse three. But here's some commendation. So you, you might notice this is the reverse order. Usually, the commendation comes first, but in this this instance, the commendation comes second. And it says in verse four, "Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments." And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. It's interesting, too, to think of this, again, as a city of commerce. There was probably a lot of um, clothing and, and garments were probably a big part of the commerce that took place there. I, I don't know that for certain, but it's a guess. We then uh, come to the he that overcometh statement in Verse 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name in the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. When it says confess his name before my father, we might think again of um, that passage in section 130 where your, your name is connected to the receipt of a white stone, and that would link this he that overcometh statement with the earlier one that is given to those in Pergamos in verse 17 of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. So let's just talk for a moment in verse 5 about this concept of being clothed in white raiment. Um Another way to to read this is that the same shall be clothed in white clothing like them. That's how the Weymouth translation puts it. It's interesting too to think about that vision that Nephi had when he saw the apostle John and was told that John would write this this vision that Nephi was not to write it. And in that case, John was wearing white. He was wearing a white robe, as it says. And so this is part of the picture that the Lord is creating for us in teaching us that uh, what, what, what happens when we overcome. Some great rewards await and uh, this is a vision of the reward that awaits when we are wearing white clothing like them and our name is being confessed before the Father and before his angels. And then we get this familiar statement in verse 6, He that hath an ear Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We move now to our sixth city, which is Philadelphia. And we know that um, brotherly love translates into the word Philadelphia. Hence our reference to modern-day Philadelphia in the United States as the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia, in, in ancient times, was known as the gateway to the east and was particularly famous for its wine production. Uh, and there was a god of wine named Bacchus, B-A-C-C-H-U-S, in Philadelphia. Uh, it was not a particularly important city in its day. Truth be told, unlike Sardis, which was, which was a major uh, area of commerce, But it is most certainly a part of the story here and gives us the opportunity to see this same formula play out for the sixth time as this city is being addressed. So verse 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. All right, so there's the sixth description that we get of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? What is the key of David? And what's happening when it says, Openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth? It's actually a quotation from Isaiah. It's from the 22nd chapter of Isaiah uh, when it says, And the key of the house of David in, in the 22nd verse of Isaiah 22, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So that's what Isaiah is saying there. And, but still, why key of David? Well, um, David had a chief minister, and his name was Eliakim. And Eliakim was given keys to um, open the locked doors of the temple during that time. and That was his role. So these keys can be seen then as a symbol of power and of governing authority. And so Jesus himself is the one who holds the key of David, meaning that he holds the keys or the key to the holy temple. So that's what he's saying. It's temple talk. And as we know, as Latter-day Saint readers who are familiar with the temple, these first three chapters of Revelation are just full of references to the temple. So... Having the key of David means, then, again, that, that Jesus Christ holds the key to the heavenly temple and ultimately to life in the presence of God. Consider the heavenly temple for a moment. Uh, when we go back to, I think it's Hebrews chapter 9, we talk about uh, the, the temple veil, but then we we talk about the actual veil, that the actual high priest, even Jesus Christ, will go through, he'll penetrate that veil on his one and only Day of Atonement, as we're taught in Hebrews. And so in this case, uh, I just made a reference to our our temples here on earth, but this is the heavenly temple. There is an ultimate heavenly temple, just as there is an ultimate heavenly veil. That's something to think deeply about. Okay, we come to our commendation in verse 8. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it for thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name so philadelphia might not be a major player among these cities but the lord has favorable things to say to this city he doesn't really give them any rebuke or any counsel of or correction he goes on in verse 9 to say behold i will make them of the synagogue of satan which say they are jews And are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, it says in verse 10. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So let me step back, talk for just a moment about this phrase in verse 9. The synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. I talked earlier about the idea that those who say they are Jews of the Jewish religion are not practicing the pure element of the law that was given at Moses' time any more than Christians were practicing the pure element of Christianity at the time that Joseph Smith entered the stage. But this also could be a reference to the Judaizers, and uh, that's an interesting word. Uh, it's a recurring problem in the New Testament that of the Judaizers. The term, as near as we can tell, comes from Galatians. When you go back to the Greek, uh, the term is not used in Galatians chapter two verse fourteen in the King James version, but the Greek manuscript can be translated into the word Judaizer. And uh, these these were Christians who did not want to completely abandon. The practices of the old law and it's something that Paul was uh, contending with uh, continually in his epistles. So that's probably what the Lord is addressing here. If he's not addressing just, just kind of the permutation of the Jewish religion that existed at the period of time, it could be the Judaizers. Okay. Verse 10. This is interesting. It talks about the hour of temptation. So it's suggesting that a time will come of great temptation. And in this case, again, it says, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. And that's because you've been so good. You're one of mine. I will keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. You're you're going to be kept from this and you're going to withstand this just fine. Temptation in this sense, um, probably has reference to do more with a trial or with buffetings that will come upon the world. Deuteronomy chapter 4 uses temptation kind of in this context. Uh, So it kind of, I think, helps us to understand the meaning of temptation here in Revelation. Verses 34 and 35 in Deuteronomy 4 say, Or hath God assayed to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations? by signs and by wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes unto thee it was shewed that thou mightest know that the Lord he is God there is none else beside him so that has a reference to temptations as great trials and tribulations and uh, great uh, tumult Advice is given, counsel in this sense is given to these people of Philadelphia. In verse 11, behold, I come quickly, hold fast. There's that term again, which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And that's interesting. They, 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 that's, you, you could say take thy anticipated crown, perhaps. Uh, and it, it implies that there will be a time in the future when those who remain faithful will uh, will reign and will sit with God as a joint heir. And in verse 12, here's our overcometh statement. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my god and i will write upon him my new name this phrase to go no more out shows up in several places in the scriptures and i think most powerfully in the book of mormon an example of this is in helaman chapter 3 verse 30 talking about those who will lay upon the word of god in fact let me read since we've we've talked about the two-edged sword In this context, let me go back and read this very familiar two verse sequence in Helaman three verses twenty-nine through thirty. Yea, we see that whosoever will may lay hold upon the word of God which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked. And land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob and with all our holy fathers to go no more out. So that's what the Word is able to do. It's able to land their souls, those who are found with the Word in them, who have treasured it up, who have lain hold upon it. Here, as it says in Helaman 3, they're the ones that when this word comes with its quick decisive power that will be that, will, that, that that will be placed on the right hand of God to go no more out and there are lots of other passages that we could reference that use that phrase to go no more out as it shows up here in verse 12 in revelations 312 revelation 312 I Tend to pluralize that, and it is not plural. It's the revelation of Saint John the Divine. (laughs) By the way, uh, the Divine might not have reference so much to John being a divine character like unto God, but maybe it could mean that he, uh, the Divine, as in someone who divines things like a prophet. You could think of it that way. What we then read in verse twelve, and I will write upon him the name of my God. That's a beautiful notion. And reminds me of that phrase that is worth worth thinking deeply about. Uh, For I am called by Thy name. Uh, this shows up in Jeremiah, and uh, a man who was under so much duress. Uh, Jeremiah chapter fifteen verse sixteen says, "Thy words were found, and I did eat them." and thy word was unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart for i am called by thy name o lord god of hosts i just i think i'll read it again thy words were found so we're again we're talking about the word aren't we and i did eat them and that that might simply mean i internalized them because we've talked a lot about the word being in you in the new testament And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Thy word was. And this is what Helaman was talking about too. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. So an interesting connection, I think, to this statement in Revelation about I will write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, I will write upon him my new name. To, to this idea of having the name of, of God. Um, Bruce R. McConkie said, God's name is God. To have his name written on a person is to identify that person as a God. Those who gain eternal life become gods. This concept I, I won't expand on in verse 12 about a new name. And it is mentioned earlier as well about writing upon him. My new name shows up uh, again in uh, verse 17 of chapter two and, and says that those who overcome get a white stone with a new name written, which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. So that seems to be the same doctrine in both cases. And then here's this familiar verse again in verse 13. He that hath an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." And now our last city, and this is Laodicea. Laodicea is interesting for a few reasons. One of them is that it had a medical school of a sort. It was known to have produced an eye salve, and and, uh, that's kind of referenced in these verses that we'll go through. It was a wealthy place. There was banking there. And uh, we're going to learn about lukewarm and, and, and not cold or hot. Uh, when we read about Laodicea, those famous uh, verses. And uh, it's interesting to know that there was a hot springs that um, sent warm water into the city of Laodicea. And those hot springs were at a place called Hierapolis. And uh, they, they flowed down into Laodicea. This is the one city that doesn't get any praise, no commendation. So we'll get into that in just a moment. But first, for the seventh time, let's have a description of the great Jesus Christ. He says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodosians write, These things saith the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Wow, a lot there. The beginning of the creation of God. That sounds similar to, to John's gospel when he is referred to as the beginning. When he's called the Amen, uh, we know that the, the word Amen, and of course we end prayers with that and we end talks with that, and it, it's it's like a, an expression of certification, really. Um It means truly, it means certainly, it means faithfully. Uh, It's almost a way of saying I certify this or I mean this. And so uh, for Christ to be the great amen um, shows that, as Elder McConkie says, it is in and through him that the seal of divine affirmation is placed on all the promises of the Father. So if the Father utters a promise to us, you might say, and if he says says amen at, at the end of that promise, well, that's tantamount to the role of Jesus Christ. He is the amen at the end of those promises that the Savior gives us. Very very thought-provoking. We talked in Revelation Chapter 1 about him being a faithful and true witness because of the perfect marriage or harmony between his words and his actions. And he was always a witness of the light and of the love and of the character of the Father. Uh, a, A beautiful description then of who Jesus Christ is. And that was our seventh opportunity to think about who he is and what his roles are. And so now that task, since that was the seventh time, is complete. Now we move to verse 15, where we would normally get some praise and commendation, but instead we learn this about the Laodosians. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. This is very interesting and a well-known sequence of verses out of revelation. So let's talk for just a moment about this. We, we learned a few moments ago that there, there were hot springs there. So this was something that these people could most certainly relate with. Uh, Lukewarm saints could be described as those who aren't valiant in the testimony of Jesus. I I don't think it's right to say that I I wish you were hot, meaning you are righteous, or I wish you were cold, unrighteous, but instead you're in the middle. It's not exactly that. Um, The Savior wouldn't wish for that. But he is saying that lukewarm is just, there's no no position there. President Hinckley uh, put it this way. Actually, before I read that by President Hinckley, I do want to read this, this verse in section 76, verse 79, because we learn about bodies terrestrial instead of bodies that are celestial in this great vision that Joseph had. And they, and they differ in glory as the moon differs from the sun. And then the Lord says in verse 79, these are they who are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus, Therefore they obtain not the crown over the kingdom of our God. Now remember a crown was referenced earlier to those who would ultimately overcome. Uh, so so these who are lukewarm, as we learn the doctrine of covenants, are those who are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. President Hinckley said this um, the, the book of Revelation declares, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Each of us has to face the matter. Either the church is true, or it is a fraud. There is no middle ground. It is the church and kingdom of God, or it is nothing. A couple things to say about that. I think this is a conclusion That we all end up coming to if we truly read the New Testament with our hearts. I think it has an effect on us. We read of a man who turns water to wine. Who gives sight to the blind. Who heals a withered hand. Who raises Lazarus from the dead. This is not simply a man and C.S. Lewis made this clear at one point um, that this is not simply a man who's going about teaching happy, aphoristic sayings. Uh, He is portrayed in the gospel account as someone who is divine and who works miraculous works you're put in the position as a reader of having to accept that or not, and you have to decide, and there's really not a, a lot of middle ground. Either this work, the gospel account, and this man, Jesus Christ, is a fraud, or he is actually the promised Messiah that that the children of Israel had been looking forward for the entire time. And not only is, the, is he the promised Messiah, but he's also the son of God. And so you as a reader have to decide whether that's true. If you come away from that with the impression that he is simply a great teacher, uh, I don't think you've read it with your heart and read it carefully and critically because I think you really do come to a point where you have to decide for yourself what he is to you. And I think that's all wrapped up In his question in Matthew when he says, what think ye of Christ? I think this relates to Peter's words when he talks about Jesus as a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. Uh, I think that that's similar in meaning. Uh, Here's the statement by C.S. Lewis. I I think it's worth reading. I've just found it. Uh, He says the following. And and again, think about this this meaning of of being lukewarm, and how much the Lord does not like this. Lewis says, "I'm trying here." Uh, by the way, this is from Mirror Christianity. Uh, he says, "I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Him, and that's capital H. I am. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God." That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Uh, And this is kind of the the impression I've personally come to in reading the New Testament and why this statement by C.S. Lewis resonated with me so much when I found it. He then says... We are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man, Jesus, we are talking about either was and is just what he said or else a lunatic or something worse. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form, that is a favorite quote of mine and a favorite idea, and I am just going to restate this and and say that I personally have discovered in my reading of the New Testament that it does require you to take this position about Jesus Christ, therefore making him that that stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. The only way to leave the structure that has been built before us is to crawl over or around him okay that completes um, our, our thoughts about being lukewarm then now verse 17 is is something that that uh, has direct application to those of our day and and talks about uh, being in a position of comfort, how problematic that can be for us it says because thou sayest i am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked i counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with Isav. Remember, this city of Laodicea produces Isav. That thou mayest see. As many as I love, it says in verse 9, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Okay. So, w- we learn here that, that the Lord does chasten. That's the, that's the mechanism that he uses. He rebukes and chastens those who need to be refined. And he talks about, in verse 18, gold being tried or refined in the fire. Uh, However, if you are ignorant as to what it is that you need to do to change, and you have not approached the Lord uh, lamenting over your weakness and humbling yourself before him, as Moroni said, and wanting to, to turn that weakness into a strength, then you can't use your agency to instigate that process of repentance. And so in that instance, the only option for you to be become rich, as it says in verse 18, and be tried as gold in the fire, is if, as Alma taught, you're compelled to be humble. And so that's why he says in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So be zealous therefore and repent. So he's saying it would be better if you didn't have to be compelled to be humble. Just be zealous therefore and repent on your own volition, it might say. So this has a very similar spirit to when Alma was talking to those Zoramites. This state of not knowing what you don't know in verse 17 is a dangerous state indeed. And if you do say, as it says, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, you are, you are in a, a state, of, a, a, it's a morally perilous state. Uh, no one in our day has put this more um, in stronger terms than Brigham Young. This, I believe, is why Brigham Young said this 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 famous thing this this statement that's oft quoted Uh, it was first quoted by by preston Nibley in in a book called brigham young the man and his work which was published in 1936 but uh, in that brigham young said quote the worst fear that i have about members of this church is that they will get rich in this country Uh, And remember, this was at a time when the the members of the church were in great poverty, so it was probably hard for them to envision that. He said that they will get rich in this country, forget God and his people, wax fat, and kick themselves out of the church and go to hell. This people will stand mobbing, robbing, poverty, and all manner of persecution and be true. But my greater fear for them is that they cannot stand wealth. And yet they have to be tried with riches. And here we have John talking about true riches in verse 18 when he says that thou mayest be rich. I want to talk for just a moment about this notion that you can be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness wouldn't appear. Uh, He's he's talking about a people that are rich. They're increased of goods. They're certainly not naked in the true sense. But he calls them naked in verse 17 and then says that thou mayest be clothed. So what are we talking about here? I think we're talking about a scriptural nakedness. Uh, that, that, that's what's evident here. Well, what is that? It's, of course, most dramatic in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve discover that they are nakedness. So so what is scriptural nakedness? Nakedness and why is it a point of emphasis here and in the Garden of Eden account? I think we can relate, uh, all of us, with the idea of, of being unclothed in public. It's, a, it's a, what bad dreams are made of. There is a, a shame that comes with that that we, we understand in a visceral sort of a way. We, we would never want to appear naked before others. Because of that, it's a, it's a perfect way of helping us understand what spiritual nakedness might be, and it's the shame of transgression. That's what this is about. Consider what Alma says when he, when he says that you'd, you'd wish, instead of standing in his presence, you'd wish that the rocks could hide you. In fact, you'd wish you could be extinct. The shame of transgression is, is a terrible, terrible thing, and, and the only way to overcome this shame is through clothing, and it's the clothing of covenants. These ultimately, as we keep these covenants and take on this figurative clothing, we cover our figurative nakedness so that our confidence can wax strong in the presence of God, as it says in section 121. So I think all of that is implied here in what John is saying about being clothed so that the shame of thy nakedness does not appear. And then John spoke of blindness so beautifully in his gospel and, and says and, and talked about an, an episode where the Savior anointed someone's eyes and says something similar here. okay and then another this this uh, advice or, or these words to Laodicea are just full of such beautiful imagery and standalone, uh, verses that we love to pull from in the book of Revelation. So let's look at this beautiful and sacred passage in verse 20 that says behold I stand at the door and knock if any man hear my voice and open the door I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I think we we love this image because it suggests that the Lord has a willingness to come to us. Uh, it has, in that sense, the same feeling as the phrase draw near unto me and I will draw near unto you and the other versions of that that we find throughout the scriptures. Uh, in in that spirit, here's a, a beautiful statement by President Thomas S. Monson. Quote, With all the strength of my soul, I testify that our Heavenly Father loves each one of us. He hears the prayers of humble hearts. He hears our cries for help. His Son, our Savior and Redeemer, speaks to each of us today. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him. Will we listen for that knock? Will we hear that voice? Will we open that door to the Lord? that we may receive the help he is so ready to provide. I pray that he will. So President Monson here is implying that he, and of course this verse is implying that he is ready to provide this help. And, And what we have to do is open the door. Now, with that said, I think that this imagery doesn't stop there. I think it can tell us more still. You know, when we hear someone knocking at a door, we know that there's probably a person on the other side. That's usually what causes that knocking noise, although it could be a tree branch. If you have a tree close to your door, it can be other things. But generally speaking, when we hear that knocking, we cannot see who is there. And we can be in the other room, but we are are made to believe that there's a person standing at that door. OK, so when someone knocks, that's that's what we think. And the Savior saying that he knocks. So it's only something that we can hear. But it's when we open the door that we see. And when we respond to such a knock and we open the door. Someone is standing on our porch and we have full recognition at that moment and we see who was behind the knock. This imagery should tell us some things about our relationship with Jesus Christ and what it is that makes it possible for us to fully see him and and, and fully recognize him. His His knocking on the door is is the first initiating act of faith. And and the author of Hebrews kind of talks about this in, in the early part of Hebrews chapter 11, how something can't come out of nothing is, is kind of how it's how it's phrased Um, that, that wasn't exactly right but that's kind of the concept and then our opening of the door is is also an act of faith and so both parties are rewarded and that might sound presumptuous that he would be rewarded in our opening of the door but we know from other parts of the scriptures that that is something he wants it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, and he's like the father in the prodigal son story where he desperately is watching for us and wants to be reunited to us. And for us, it's the incomprehensible joy of being reunited, or of course, of tasting of that fruit that we want so much. So those are some thoughts about him standing at the door and and, and knocking. And now we come to the final, to the seventh, to him that overcometh, which means that after we cover this, the picture that is meant to, to to be given to us as readers about him that overcometh will be complete because we'll have read it the seventh time. So it says in verse 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Uh, lots to say about that. Here is what Bruce R. McConkie said. He said, Sitting with the Lord on his throne means receiving the blessings of exaltation. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, all who believe and obey the glorious gospel of God, all who are true and faithful and overcome the world, All who suffer for Christ and His Word, all who are chastened and scourged in the cause of Him whose we are, shall all shall become as their Maker, and sit with Him on His throne and reign with Him forever in everlasting glory. That, by the way, comes out of His final testimony before he died, uh, General Conference of May of 1985, that a seminal talk called The Purifying Power of Gethsemane. But in there, Elder McConkie telling us that all shall become as their maker. That is quite a statement. And uh, we, we could only be emboldened to say something like that if the Lord himself had told us that, which he does throughout Scripture and which the New Testament just talks about over and over and over in different ways about being heirs and joint heirs with him. And really, as President Nelson has taught, and I think I've mentioned this elsewhere, that the word reconciliation itself doesn't just apply, imply uh, coming back into favor with God, the offended party, but it actually means to sit with him again. And that can imply exaltation in and of itself so that's what the atonement of jesus christ opens us up to that is the possibility that is opened to us is to be able to sit with me in my throne to him that overcometh and now verse 22 the final time that this is said he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. And so I would add now that we've come to the end of this seven city journey with John through Revelation 2 and 3 that the only way for us to truly hear what is being said is if we hear it through the spirit. We cannot accept, we cannot expect the meaning of these words to come to us and to, to fully bloom, to have their meaning fully bloom in our minds and in our hearts, unless we're able to read them with the influence of the Holy Ghost and to understand what is behind these words and these beautiful symbols.